Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. Remember a few years ago when there was that news story that went massively viral about a school in Baltimore where instead of giving the kids detention, they gave them meditation? Whether you remember it or not, it was an incredible story. And not only was it true, but the story behind the story is even more incredible. The group behind that meditation instead of detention initiative has been doing all kinds of heroic work in the city of Baltimore for years. In essence, they've been going into some of the most troubled schools in some of the most underserved neighborhoods in one of the most violent cities in the country and asking the principals to give them the most challenging students. Then they teach those kids yoga and meditation, and the results have been extraordinary and validated by study after study. Today, the people behind this work are here to tell their story and to talk about how you can apply the lessons they've learned in their work to your meditation and your life. I have three guests today. Ali Smith and Atman Smith are brothers who grew up in Baltimore. Together, they co-founded the Holistic Life Foundation with their college friend, Andres Gonzalez, who you're going to hear me address as Andy in the interview. The three of them have just put out a book. It's called Let Your Light Shine. And in this interview, they're going to tell you a story that will, I suspect, obliterate any doubts you might have about whether meditation actually works. Just a few notes before we dive in. First, there's some swearing in this episode. These guys are friends. We're pretty casual together. So yeah, there's some swearing. If you're listening with children and you don't want those words, we've created a bleeped version of the podcast over at 10percent.com or on the 10% Happier app. So go there for the cleaned up version. Second note, as you'll hear, the guys introduce two key characters at the top of their yarn here. And I'm just going to call out these two characters for the sake of clarity. They are Atman and Ali's father, Smit, who they sometimes refer to as Smitty, and their godfather and spiritual mentor, whose name is Uncle Will. Okay, so Smitty and Uncle Will, keep those names in your mind and buckle up because we're about to get started with Ali Smith, Atman Smith, and Andy Gonzalez right after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. 
highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Ali Smith, Adman Smith, Andres Gonzalez, welcome to the show and in Ali's case welcome back to the show it's good to be back thanks for having us man yeah thanks for having us man we appreciate everything that you do for us and having us on here I appreciate you letting me bring Ahmed and Andy with me this time <laughs> well it was a fight you didn't want them to come just to say so it's like nah I'll let you work that out with them well I, what I was gonna say is congratulations on your new book that's huge I know what it takes to write a book I can only imagine what it takes when there are this many cooks in the kitchen. So congratulations. Appreciate that. I mean, it was a long time coming. A lot of people have been asking about a book for a long time, but things just worked out. Yeah. And we've been working together for the past 20 years. So, and with results. So we knew that it wouldn't be too difficult to do this book together. And it really wasn't. I carried the two gentlemen like I always do in life. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. He's like Ezra. He's just described. Like we tell him what to say and he just writes it all down. So like he did all the heavy lifting. Like we, we gave him all the stories. We were like the inspiration and he was just the workhorse. Yeah. If you call heavy lifting, holding a pencil, and that we're typing, then yeah, then yeah. all of that. I love the trash talking. As long as you don't turn it on me, we're good. <laughs> it's still early. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, Ali had dinner at my house a couple of months ago, and he saw that I live with an insult comic whose name is Alexander Harris, my son, and is just constantly making fun of me. When I wake up in the morning and see him for the first time, he usually looks at me and says, good morning, dummy. <laughs> he's quick too he's lighting you up all the time oh he's so quick with it yeah he lights me up on the regular that he thinks that's his job so he's excellent at his job anyway enough about me for people who are unfamiliar with the amazing work that the three of you and your team do i think it maybe makes sense to start with your origin story i'll jump ball. whoever wants to take it i'll let the three of you tell it in whatever order Go ahead, Shaw. Yeah, you always lead on. Yeah, I'll start off. And I, and I think our origin story is a lot of what the book is about. I mean, it talks about, like, where our parents came from, where our godfather came from. Like, it, it was funny, like, for us, like, the people who raised us and introduced to contemplative practices were ex-Panthers, Black men, historians, philosophers, and, like, two of the toughest and wisest and funniest people that we know and most caring. I remember we didn't really realize how 
how white the yoga world was until we went to the Garrison Institute and we went up there for a conference. We were like, damn, like the yoga world is really like we didn't we had no clue. It was like because we learned from two black men, like we were teaching around black people. So it was just like that was our introduction into the practice. Our neighborhood was North and Pulaski in Baltimore. And a lot of people don't navigate getting out of West Baltimore successfully. I think in our home, we had our dad who was like a combination of, I don't know, it was, it was pretty like yin and yang with him. Like he taught us to meditate, but he also taught us all about mental toughness. Like he would make me and my brother go up to the track and run and do workouts in the middle of the summer in 100 degree heat until we revolted one day. And we're like, look, we'll work out with you, but we are not doing this at 12 o'clock in Baltimore where it's 100 degrees and 200 percent humidity. Like we can't do this anymore. But I mean, he also gave us the the yoga background and the meditation background. And then our mom, like she was there. She wasn't into the practice, but she was like, she made us be vegan. Like we didn't even have salt and sugar in the house growing up, but she made us be vegan growing up. We caught hell from it for our friends. Like we couldn't even have a regular snowball. Like we had to take the snowball back in the house and get apple juice or orange juice poured on it, walk back outside and get joked by our friends. It's like, that was a part of it. But I mean, she was also the one that would take us the long way to school so that like we would see the big houses on the way to school. And we lived in West Baltimore, went to a private school. So like she would make us drop past. Like, this is what you guys are achieving for. Her and my dad would always get into arguments because she would force us on these vacations we couldn't really afford, but she wanted to expose us to different things. Like our tribe in our neighborhood is a big part of the reason that we do what we do. Like our family wasn't just inside our home. Our family was our entire neighborhood. And then just seeing that structure kind of fall to pieces after crack hit in Baltimore and a lot of other places. I think that was a part of it. The behavior shaping institutions we were part of, like we went to a Quaker school, a private school. That was a part of it because, you know, we got to meet people from all over the world, all types of demographics and the people in our neighborhood all went to public school and everybody looked like them, lived in the same neighborhood as them. And they didn't have as many resources or as many educational enrichment opportunities. Church we grew up in, Divine Life Church of Absolute Oneness based on yoga philosophy was a big part of it. I think a lot of those things that embarrassed us, we tried to hide from people, like reflecting back on it as adults. We're like, shit, this is a blessing. Like, like, how did we have all this stuff as kids? We ran away from it. But then as we looked at what was going on in the world, we're like, well, that's exactly what we need. I mean, the, the book is filled with all these practices and philosophies and life lessons that made us decide that we wanted to go and change the world. So we were hoping like the stories in the book and our origin inspire as many people as possible to want to go out and do the same thing, change themselves and go and change the world. Yeah. And just to, uh, I guess, to build off of what Ali was talking about, we met Andy in college. This is part of the origin story. Uh, we met him at a meditation center. We all were big meditators in college and it was like a meditation community, contemplative community uh, at college. I'm just BSing you. We did not meet at a meditation. <laughs> we met at the bar scene. Honestly, we're... I was wondering why Andy was shaking his head. I was like, this sounded... I thought maybe you were telling the truth. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Okay, you were doing keg stands, and that's where you met. Exactly. But, yeah. but the crazy thing is, is like we were the first people in the party, last persons, last people to leave. But near the end of the party, we started like philosophizing, like, yo, you know, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? And... The partying went from that to a book club because, you know, we started looking for the answers for like why we're here. What's the purpose of life? So, you know, we went to like a lot of the obscure libraries at University of Maryland College Park, Go Terps. And we started researching on like creational theories, philosophy, science, astronomy, astrology, all that stuff, looking for the answers of what else is out here. And the thing about that was the more we read the more questions came up and they would always talk about, you know, the answers are within, the answers are within, but they never really told you how to go within to find those answers. 
And around that time, we started hanging out with our teacher, me and Ali's godfather, my dad's best friend. Well, he was always preaching yoga and meditation to us, but I don't think we were ready at the time. But when we were thirsting for knowledge in regards to, you know, what else is out here, he was sitting right there. Like one thing, we're big Star Wars heads. We were like, he was like Yoda in a Dagobah system waiting for his student, Luke. We went there and he basically was telling us about yoga and meditation. And we had a manual by uh, Yogi Bhajan on his altar. And I picked the book up and it was a lot of meditations that taught you a lot of esoteric or uh, the esoteric benefits of these meditations. And we were blown away. We're like, yo, meditation can teach you how to do this and basically become a superhero. And, you know, we're big into superheroes too. And he was like, yeah, you know, a lot of people get caught up on the siddhas, they they call them in, in the yoga philosophy or background. And he was like, people get caught up on that, but it's really, you know, about uniting or being at one or that union with the universal energy, God, or whatever you want to call them. And he was like, if y'all interested, you know, I have two requests, one, to be a teacher and two, to show up at my house at 4.30 in the next morning. And honestly, we were at his house watching basketball and drinking a couple beers. So he probably didn't think we were going to show up at 4.30 in the morning the next morning. But we showed up, knocked on his door like 4.25, and he took us to a park where they had long needle pines and a reservoir. And we started our journey there. And we were like, yo, like the answers are within is this meditation and yoga. And it started our journey. First of all, Andy, let me ask you this. I introduced you as Andres. Which do you prefer for me to address you as going forward? Because I've always called you Andy. Yeah, Andy's cool. It doesn't really matter to me. It's whatever people feel most comfortable with. So but let, me, let me bring you in. To recap the story, Ali and Atman grew up raised by, and this is their turn, not mine, hippies in the hood. And then they go to college. They meet you as their drinking buddy and fellow search searcher seeker and then you you get out of college and you don't know what to do next and that if memory serves is when you kind of stumbled upon this i would say game-changing world-changing idea can you pick up the story from there yeah you know it was crazy because i was going to mention how like when we were doing all that studying that atma was talking about you know and we're going into these libraries and we're we're researching all this stuff about the ancient history and creation theories you're in, at a stage in your life, I believe, where you're really philosophizing more and you're asking yourself, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of all this? What am I going to do, right? I think when we were doing a lot of that research, we we really noticed that, you know, a lot of people were struggling and that there is a lot of trauma in the world and there's a lot of atrocities that were going down and no one was doing anything about it. And, and in the book, we address this too, where we even talk about how not only is that going on in the present moment, but it's been going on for ages, centuries. You know what I mean? That people just aren't treated fairly and certain people are, but certain people aren't. And it's usually people of color are not. And we knew we wanted to do something about it. We really didn't know, I think at that time, exactly what we were going to do. I, I remember the day I graduated, I got my hair cut. I have really long hair now. I know that the, the listeners can't see it, but I cut it all off. Then I go to Abman's house and he sees me and he, I have my hair cut up. And he's like, what'd you do? And I'm like, well, man, you know, I was a business major at that time. I'm like, I'm gonna get a job. I bought all these suits and I, I'm supposed to, this is, this is the American dream, right? You go to college and you get a job and you keep moving on. And and he's like, oh no. And it was so wild. He, he picks up his phone. He calls his dad. He calls Smitty up and he's like, hey man, guy, I've told you about Andy. You know, he's been grinding with me and Ali 
for a while, we've been studying and doing all this stuff and talking about doing this, whatever it was we were doing, because we still didn't really have a name for it or meaning about what we were doing. He's like, he just cut his hair and said he's going to get a job. Can you talk to him? And he hands me the phone. And this is the first time I ever talked to Smitty ever in my entire life. And I'm like, hey, hello. And he's like, hey, Andy. He's like, yeah, so, you know, my boys tell me that, you know, y'all working on this project and and I got a, like a deal for you, basically. He's like, if you keep sticking to this and you don't get a job, you keep doing this, then you can come live at my crib here in Smallwood. And I was going to be moving in with Ali. You don't want to pay rent or nothing like that. And you can basically follow your dream, follow your mission. And what else do I say? Shit, hell yeah. I mean, this is, this is a dream come true. College student. I ain't got work and I can do what I want to do with my two best friends, my two brothers. I'm like, jackpot. You know what I mean? I didn't know he was moving into Smallwood at the, t- <laughs> at the time. And it's not the nicest of neighborhoods. <laughs> but it was amazing. You know, that was, I think, what really for me was like, wow, this is going down. So then we moved to Smallwood and that's when things started popping off. We were, like Ahmed said, we were in our practice and we were heavy into our practice then. We were, we always joke like we were hermits, but it just happened to be three of us in the same cave, but the cave was just the row homes. And so we were in different parts of the cave and we were just getting it in, doing all the practices that Uncle Will was telling us about, always being a scientist, like he used to just always preach to us about, about don't take his word for it. Do the practice yourself. See what happens to you. And then you'll you'll have that wisdom. You have that real knowledge. So at that point, we're just grinding and grinding and doing the work on ourselves. And that's when that transformation, I think, really, really happened. That's when you start, and you're a practitioner, that's when you start seeing the world through different eyes. You start hearing the world through different ears. You start seeing yourself in everything and everyone and, and just life starts changing. So we're living in this neighborhood that isn't one, isn't one of the best neighborhoods in America. You know what I mean? It's, and we're blissing still. And our friends can't understand it. They're looking at us like, why y'all happy all the time? You ain't got no job. You ain't got no money. You're living in the hood. There's violence all around you. Look at this neighborhood's trash all over. Da, 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 da. And we're like, well, well, look at you. You got money. You got a job. You got the nice shoes, nice clothes, nice car, nice house. You got everything. And you're miserable. So I think that was one of those moments where we kind of knew, hey, we're we're on to something. And then we got an opportunity with some kids to do an after-school program. And they wanted us to be football coaches. Instead, we were like, hey, can we teach them yoga? And that's when stuff really, really started skyrocketing to where we are now because we had the opportunity to start sharing the practices that we were doing ourselves with others. And that same transformation that happened within us, we could start happening with the kids. And it was beautiful to see that transformation occur. As I understand it, and I may get some of these details wrong, so you guys will correct me, but you started working with the kids at the same elementary school that you, Ali and Atman, attended? So we started with an elementary school that our mom worked at, Windsor Hills Elementary School. Carmen Holmes was the principal at the time, and she just, she needed some male influences in the school, so we started there. And then we took those kids because we bonded with them to the Druid Hill YMCA um, we were there for probably like six or seven years, maybe two more years, I guess six, seven, eight, three more years with that group. And then we got a bunch of kids from our neighborhood, like right in our neighborhood, like the kids that were just like terrorizing our neighbors. We took all them in. And then as they got older, uh, we went to the school that our mom went to, school that all of our friends went to, because our parents sent us to private schools, maybe like a 20 minute drive, 15 minute drive in the morning with traffic from where we lived. But it, we, it was definitely like serving our home school, because like I said, our mom graduated from that school. All of our friends that we grew up with in our neighborhood graduated from that school. All of our first group of students went to that school. And our second group of students from our neighborhood also went to that school. It was like, kind of like going home to, to serve our home neighborhood. 
Is it true that you essentially asked at one point for the most difficult students? <laughs> I mean, we were gluttons for punishment at that point, Dan. And the funny thing was, I, I remember we went and we went and met with the principal, and the, we passed the principal a list of the kids that we were working with. And the principal busts out lavish. You guys, you guys are working with these kids, and it was one particular family. We're not gonna put their business out there like that, but like it was one particular family. It was like five or six of them, and she was like, "You guys pick all these kids up after school. You take, you trust to take them to the Druid Hill YMCA and not wild that place out. Like y'all do that." And we we're like, "Yeah, those are our kids." And we we're like, "You can have, you can have whatever you want here. You go, I'll give you space. I'll give you students." And we we're like, "Well, give us all your worst students. Like that's what we wanted to help. That's what we figured. That's what we thought we could make the biggest impact with." And she held us to that for probably almost a decade that we were at this school. She would always, all the kids, all the time, she would have kids kicked out of other programs and stuff was going on with. She'd be like, hey, I got a program for you. She'd walk to the door smiling, kid in her arm, be like, I got one for y'all. And she would just usher them on in and then the wildness would start. So just to put a fine point on this, you are in Baltimore in one of the most underserved neighborhoods and you're specifically asking for the most difficult and challenging children. You then start teaching these kids yoga and some meditation. Were you greeted by the children or anybody else with some degree of skepticism? See, we kind of tricked them, Dan. We didn't tell them anything about yoga and meditation when we first started. We went up to them and we were like, yo, how would y'all like to hang out with us? We'll let y'all play basketball, take y'all swimming, help y'all with y'all homework. And they were like, yeah, definitely. We would love that. And we let them have some fun playing basketball. We took them swimming. They dried off. And then we were like, all right, meet us in the dance studio. And I guess they thought we were going to have a, a dance off or something because they came up there and they were all happy and all that stuff. And then they looked around and looked real puzzled and they saw a whole bunch of yoga mats rolled out. And I think that we were such a positive influence on them and we were there for them that they just were down with whatever we wanted to bring to them. So they sat down on the yoga mats and they were receptive. And, you know, we kept it fun. You know, our teacher said, if your students aren't laughing, then you ain't doing shit, basically. So we kept it entertaining and engaging and we challenged them. We pushed them in the practices. We told them the practicality of it, how it could help them out, how it could boost their energy before they go to school or tied into sports and tell them about like how the sunrise can help them not hurt themselves because it's a full body warm up. Tell them about like the breathing practices that we teach, how it could expand your lung capacity and help you run longer. And after we like did the physical practices, which kind of got that restlessness out of their body, did the breathing practice, which not only expanded their lung capacity, it slowed their mind down. It enabled them to actually get still, get into the meditation and tap into that inner peace. And, you know, a lot of the times kids are from such chaotic homes that those little stints of inner peace, they would actually fall asleep. And, you know, it would be some of the most peaceful time that they would have in their entire day. So after like they felt the practice, they were sold. And yeah, we had to trick them into it originally, but once they actually felt the benefits of the practice, because like Andy said, we used to tell them, we can tell y'all what the benefits are, but just do the experiment, be a scientist and see what it does for you. They had all the faith in us. They did the experiment and they felt the benefits of the practice. And we have kids that we started out with 
20 years ago that are still practicing yoga. If they're not working for us, uh, you know, that's the beautiful thing about our organization. We employ a lot of the kids that came through our programs. They still have a practice in their lives. So that's how important of a factor it is in their human experience. And Ottman's very humble and makes it sound easy. It was hard, Dan. Like, you know, what I mean, like we got cussed out by kids. We got cussed out by parents. Like, you know, what I mean, like it was it was a lot going on. We were breaking up fights every day. And like we thought our program was going to get canceled. Like there was a lot going on. But the cool thing was like slowly, slowly chipping away and getting these kids to like, I, I don't think we had a word for it at the time, but these kids were highly traumatized. Like all that executive function, that shit was out the window. Like these kids had no acts, like their brains were in survival mode. So it was like there was there was all these things going on. We were like, I remember in the beginning, we were like, man, these are some badass kids. Like why are these kids so bad? But then it was like getting to know them more. And like figuring out what was going on, it was like we would see what's going on in their homes and what was going on in their community, what was going on around them. We were like, damn, like I don't think I could live with this and function even half as well as they're doing. But then it was like I was talking about the physical practice, making their body a safe space. Like once that happened, then we could start to move to their mind. The breath work would slow them down and they could get into the meditations. And I think the biggest thing was the connection, that love. Like we like we loved all of our kids. Like it, it was uh, it was there was no doubt about it. You can walk in the room. And you could feel the love between us and them. Like, it, it was one of those things. I remember the, one of the first times we bought one of our major funders in there. First thing we were surprised about was the fact that the gym went from, like, 50 footballs and dodgeballs and all this stuff and having to keep your head on a swivel to them trying to do yoga. Like on the mats, they're kind of running around to them doing the breathing, start to slow down a little more. And then when they're meditating, you could hear a pin drop in that gym. So they were impressed by that. But I think the thing they were most impressed about was that we there was the three of us at that point maybe like 90 kids. And we knew every single kid's name. Like they would come up to us. We knew who they were. We knew what was going on in their lives. And she was like, that bond that you all have with them is amazing. And it was something that like Andy was the nutball that would tell everybody he loved them. You know what I mean? Like he would, the parents would come by and be like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And they'd be like, who is this dude telling me they love me? Like what is wrong with him? But we all embodied love. Like we, we treated each other with love. We treated ourselves with love. We treated the kids with love. I remember one time Ottman got cussed out by some kid's dad. And, like, keeps it all together, treats the dad with love, keeps treats the kid with love. Because he could have easily gone over the edge and, and whipped this dude's ass. But it was like, no, I'm, that's, I'm not going to do that in front of my kids. I'm not going to put that energy out there. So it's just like they constantly saw us being love. And it, and it kind of helped. It helped them to connect to themselves and love themselves. Because I think that's one of the biggest things that's going on in Baltimore right now is, like, people don't have respect for human life because they don't respect their own lives. They don't love themselves. So I'm not going to care about going over and shooting somebody or doing something violent to somebody if I don't even care about myself. I think we were, through us loving them and through them seeing us love each other and ourselves, they were starting to love themselves. And from there, it could start to ripple out. And we saw the kids started to really, really, really change who they were and how they functioned in the world and how they treated each other and themselves. I mean, it's hard to talk about love without sounding corny. And yet, this, I think, is a clear-cut case of love being the active ingredient of this whole thing. I remember when you said love being corny, like there was one school year, me and Andy were living together. Ottman lived like four houses down on the corner and the kids would all congregate on our porch and they would terrorize our neighbor. Like the lady lived next door to us. Like they broke her banister. They would mess up her car. And one day, one of the kids like like broke one of the mirrors on our car and the neighbor cussed, uh, cussed the three of us out. And the kid that did it, like, I remember I tore into him. I was like, duh, duh, duh. the next day, all the kids came around. He wasn't there. And uh, I, was, I remember I talked to him. I was like, I was like, where's Tay at? Like, why was like, you, you got mad at him. Didn't I? I was like, man, 
got mad at him. Like, I love Tay. Like, you, ain't nothing wrong with him. I love that dude. And all the kids were like, ew, you can't say you love him. And I was like, what? I was like, I love all y'all. They're like, ew, you can't just run around saying it, Ali. You just can't be saying you love people. And these are the kids that are dropping every single F-bomb, Emma, Effer, B's, like any curse word you could possibly imagine. They're throwing that. And they're telling us love is a corny thing. And then now, Ramon Brown, kid that was in that group, the ringleader of that group, is one of those kids. He's still with us. Like, he's father of two sets of twins that are, like, under five. But, you know, like, the thing with him, like, he was one of those kids that said that. And now this dude will not hang up the phone with us without saying I love you. And if he and if he hangs up the phone, he'll call us back. He'll be like, yo, I forgot to tell you. I love you, big bro. And then hang up the phone. Like, so it's just, like, that has, like, it was corny. I mean, to them, it was corny. To a lot of people, it is corny. But... We were always taught that like love was strength, love was powerful, and love was the most powerful force in the universe. Like that's what love was taught to us as. I mean, because we had like like our dad and our godfathers, two big tough dudes, but they would say I love you to the people that mattered. Like they would they would show love to everybody. So it was just I think seeing it embodied by the two of them made didn't make it seem like something weak or corny to us as we were like kind of navigating through life and trying to figure things out. You know, I'm still reflecting a little on, on something you said earlier, Dan. We've been doing this for 20 years, over 20 years now, and gotten interviewed countless amount of times. And the way you worded that statement, like, so let me get this right. Y'all chose the worst city, the worst neighborhood, and then we're like, let's get the worst kids. When you first said it, I'm like, man, we were some dumbasses when we, when we were younger. Right? <laughs> like, what in the world were we thinking, you know? But but honestly, I, I think it... it a large part of that was we were pretty wild ourselves. Like when I'm jokes about the meditation class and the party thing, like we were the party animal dudes. As a child, I got arrested three times before I even turned 18. I was off the hook, right? So I think a lot of what we saw, whether it was experiences we had ourselves or our peers, friends we had, we kind of saw a lot of that stuff. So that's who we wanted to help, you know what I mean? And, and we didn't do that just in Baltimore. Anytime we go anywhere around the nation, around the world, and we're setting up something, we're like, all right, yeah, we're going to do this with the teachers and we'll do this assembly. But hey, do, do me a favor. And can you get all your like problem kids, those high flyers? You know what I mean? I'm doing air quotes like the listeners can hear it when I say problem kids. You know what I mean? And, and they will. And we'll sit down with them wherever we go. And I think it's because we experience a lot of that ourselves and, and we can put ourselves in their shoes and then when we went through the practice and that transformation occurred with us, it's like I can hear our teacher's words that, that we would be quite remiss if we didn't share this stuff with everybody. And in particular, those kids that really, really needed it and who had gone through a lot of stuff. And I think that's why for us, it kind of was so easy because we've been through it and we knew that, that, hey, these practices work and they can really make a difference in their lives. Coming up, much more with Ali, Atman, and Andy from the Holistic Life Foundation right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices— 
along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, you say the practices work. I'm going to pretend to be skeptical now because I'm not because I, I know what the answer is. But <laughs> I can imagine some listeners saying, OK, well, you've told us some really moving stories. But does this program actually work? There's a lot of different ways you can look at it. We, we've told you a bunch of anecdotal stories. But even if you look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. Like our Mindful Moment program, which was the program, like you saw the turning detention to meditation viral stuff that was going on online. That's our Mindful Moment program. It's a it's a program where you get a room in a school. We have one of our staff members who's really well trained in there. And when a kid gets in crisis, they either get referred or they self-refer to the room. They come to the room, they work with our staff, and we do some active listening and mirroring. Like, we don't counsel the kids because we're not counselors. Like, that's not what we do. But the kids feel empowered by that, and they start to kind of ease up a little bit. They feel that connection, do some breath work, some meditation, some mindfulness practices, send them back to class in 15 to 20 minutes, and then you, they go about their day. And there's also recording at the beginning and the end of the day where the kids practice together with the staff. And that's our that's pretty much what our Mindful Moment program is. But the thing with that program is suspension numbers drop drastically in every single school that that program works in. At the Robert W. Coleman Elementary School, the school we were talking about earlier that our mom graduated from that's in our home neighborhood, there hadn't been a suspension there in like eight years. Uh, Fort Worthington Elementary Middle, the year before we got there, there were around 171 suspensions. After the first year, that number was in the 50s. After the second year, that number was under 10. You know what I mean? And it's and the people equate it to what's going on. I remember we had to get some information for a grant from the principal at Robert Cole. I remember walking into our office, her and the assistant principal are there. And I'm like, hey, we need suspension numbers for this grant that we're putting in. So they passed me a piece of paper. And I see all these zeros on it. And I'm like, what is that from? Like, what's going on here? She's like, Ali, you don't know what that's from? I was like, I don't know. What are y'all fudging the numbers? Like there, there can't be zero suspensions here. And she's like, she, they just bust out laughing. They're like, no, Ali, like it's what you and Ottman and Andy are doing at this school. Like 
your program, like kids that we're about to suspend, we send to you. They recenter themselves and they're ready to go about their day. Like that mindful moment program, if you look at it, like at the beginning of the year, the referral rates to the room are off the charts. Like there's kids in there all the time. But then the kids learn what their stressors look like. They learn what center is and when they're drifting away from it, they learn how to pull themselves back. And then they start to learn like, oh, I can they start to use the practice in the moment, don't need to go to the room. So by the end of the year, the referral numbers to the room are very, very low. So suspension numbers go down. Kids learn to use the practice in real time. We've had schools where kids actually teach the other kids to do breathing practices and they got their highest ACT scores in school history after doing this. So it's helping out academically. It's helping out socially. It's helping out behaviorally. It's helping out across the board. So I mean, like you can listen to our cool, like we do have some, we got some dope stories after 20 years of work, but like the numbers don't lie either. And you've been studied. As I understand it, your programs have been studied by academics. So there, there are some numbers that go beyond suspension rates. Oh, definitely. We had Johns Hopkins and Penn State did the first randomized control study on the effectiveness of yoga and mindfulness on urban youth. And they found that their lung capacity increased. They're able to deal with more stressful situations. And it's honestly one of the studies that if anybody wants to get yoga into schools, they will reference that study and show the benefits and how it can impact a school and a child's life. And like perceived stress and goes down and they just can deal with a lot more just because they're able to respond to things instead of react with different practices that we teach. It's an incredible story. And that's why I'm such a huge fan and supporter of your work. Let's pivot though to what you've learned in terms of practices that can be applied in any life to help us do life better, no matter where we live and no matter what our age is. What, what kind of practices are you teaching in the book that, that any of us could do? I know one practice that helps me a lot is the practice of uh, Janana yoga. It's not a well-known form of yoga. I think when people think of yoga, they think about the bending and the stretching and the asanas. Like that's all they, that's all most people get to when they get to yoga practice. But our teacher, uh, Uncle Will was always about like, uh, he would always say to us, you will not get through this course without learning. And then he would throw these other more subtle forms of yoga at us. Like Atma was talking about us practicing with him, but I think for maybe like the the last 15 years we learned from him, we didn't get on a mat at all. Like we were pretty much sitting around his kitchen table talking about the yoga of how you live your life and how you practice those other 22 hours that you're out in your day if you're on your mat for two hours a day. And uh, Janana Yoga was one of the ones that, that really gets out there because it's all about like the yoga of knowledge and your thoughts. I think the one of the first parts that helped me with Janana Yoga was realizing that I'm an asshole in some ways. You know what I mean? Like there's certain ways that I'm an asshole and like everybody is, but I think you have to, and I think it makes you aware of it because uh, you're watching your thoughts. You're watching how you're treating yourself. You're watching in the inner dialogue. And I think it's, it's all about like being aware of that. And then like you become aware of what, what those thoughts are. And then the second part is like reflection and like looking at where those thoughts are coming from, like where those actions are coming from. And the third part is turning it into something positive. So like the energy you put out is the energy in yogic philosophy the energy you put out is the energy that comes back to you. And it's even stronger when it comes back. So it's like you can be putting out all that negativity through your thoughts, through your actions, through your words, through what's going on to other people or to yourself. Either way, that negativity is coming back to you. But if you can watch your mind and see what's swirling up, like, OK, that's a thought about this. This is where it came from. And I'm not going to choose to let it be something negative. I'm going to switch it to something positive. So like if someone if someone did something rude to me and I'm going through my day. 
And I think about it all the time. And I'm thinking about how I would love to kick this person's ass. I'd like to do something rude to them back. And all this negativity is going out there. Or I can catch that thought like when it first forms or early on when it's forming, like, okay, boom, that's the thought about that person that did me dirty. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to let it go. And I'm not going to send all that negativity out there. I'm going to actually take the time to switch it to something positive about that person, put some positive energy out there and let it come back. It's not an easy form to practice. I'm not going to say I win all the time instantly with that practice, but just the knowledge of it and having a, a, an option, I think, is what our teacher was always trying to give us. Like he was trying to give us options with the way that we lived our life, a little more knowledge, a little more wisdom, and a way to be more positive in the world, like with the energy you're putting out there and the way you treat yourself and the way you treat other people. So Janana Yoga is like the yoga of your thoughts. Everybody's thinking all the time. You don't have to be able to twitch yourself up like a pretzel. You don't have to be able to take a deep breath. You just have to be aware of your thoughts, watch them, reflect on where they're coming from, and then turn them into something positive. And it, it's a, it's a, it makes a drastic change with the way you treat yourself and the way you treat the other people around you. I know the detailed instructions are in the book, but just to recap, it sounds like Janana Yoga can be practiced free range, whatever you're doing. It's just the practice of turning your gaze inward and looking what kinds of thoughts you're having and then making the active decision to change the channel. Exactly. Perfect way of putting it. Can that be turned into some sort of like denial or this power of positive thinking bullshit that I think has been quite harmful to a lot of people? Now, you heard me first off say that I can be an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying I'm above or beyond those thoughts, but the thoughts don't own me. You know what I mean? I think it's one of those things where, like, you see the thought, but also the, the part in between is you're, you're reflecting on seeing where that thought's coming from. Because thoughts come from a certain place. Like, it comes from a certain emotion, a certain interaction that you've had. So it's about reflecting on that, too. But then, instead of letting that thought dominate the way that you live your day or your energy... Switch it to something a little more positive. like. But it's it's about the awareness of it, too. The awareness of the thought, the awareness of its root, and then making the choice to switch to something positive. Not just being like, oh, that person's an asshole. I'm just going to send them some love. Like, like okay, why do why why are the thoughts of that person being this way coming up? And then looking at the real root of it and why you feel that way, and then making the choice to switch it. Because that spiritual bypassing stuff doesn't work. It doesn't solve anything. Like, you really have to know where this stuff's coming from and the root of it to really make a change. So it's, it doesn't preclude taking effective, firm action. It doesn't make you into a palooka or overly passive. It's just about counter-programming against our evolutionarily hardwired negativity bias. Do we look like palookas to you, Dan? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe Andy? Oh, good answer. Oh, just remember, you started it. You started it. <laughs> Any other practices... Yeah, I'll jump in. Another practice, just like Ali was saying, for the past, last 15 years, a lot of the practices that our teacher, Uncle Will, used to teach us was more subtle with us sitting around his island in his kitchen. And this was one of his favorites. It was bhakti yoga or the yoga of devotion. And the, one of the concepts of bhakti yoga is that word respect. And if you break that word down, respect, re means again, and spec, like spectacles means to look. And what he means by that is when somebody's coming up to you and you, you may get uh, caught up in seeing that person as an asshole. But, you know, if they are rubbing you the wrong way, you originally see them and see them being an asshole. Then you kind of look again, look a little deeper and you look and see their light. You look past their physical appearance and look into their light, that that light that's inside them 
is the same light that's inside you. So it's really about respecting the differences that you have with people and looking deeper and seeing that unity within you both. And that will kind of make you rise above a lot of the BS that could pull you down. And that's like one of the times he taught us that was right before Congressman Ryan and James Gimeon uh, from Mindful Magazine came to visit our program. And that parent was all in my face cursing me out because his son lost his cell phone and thought one of our staff stole it. And I was really about to get angry with him and the street was about to come out at me. And then I looked around at the kids. I saw the light in the kids. Then I looked at the gentleman who was cursing me out and it was hard to see that light, but I looked hard and, you know, I saw that light and, and that that allowed me to slow down and respond to that situation and use my words instead of my fists. So it's a practice. And, and like one of the things that he says, like a lot of people do yoga on the yoga mat for an hour or two a day, but then there's 23 hours left in the day. You can't be an asshole. So it's all about taking that practice or whatever you can off the mat and into your life. And this is one of those practices that you can take off the mat and into your life and help you slow down because a lot of people are stressed out. There's a lot of trauma that's out here in the world. So everything isn't going to be peaches and cream. So this practice kind of helps you navigate and not give in to your lower emotions. And even if you're dealing with those people that are trying to push your buttons, you're able to respond in a higher fashion and not have them control you, but you can control the situation. I like that a lot. And it tracks with just something that I've noticed in my own practice 13 years in, which is that I increasingly can see that even people that I vehemently disagree with, their actions or their words, that if I were in the exact same position under the same conditions of life history and present moment conditions, it is highly likely I would do the exact same thing. And that is very humbling. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more cognitive than seeing their inner light, but it kind of lands you on the same place of dropping your superiority. You know, Dan, our teacher, we would walk into his house and he would be watching the news. He would always watch stuff with George Bush when he was president and Trump when he was president. And we were like, why are you watching this? He was like, man, I'm testing my bhakti yoga. Like he would be like, I don't agree with anything either two of them are saying, but I'm going to see their light because they need it more than everybody. They need more love than everybody. They're so angry. I'm going to send them a lot of love. So he would like sit there and watch things that would like intentionally try to trigger him, like with some of their policies and stuff. And he would just sit there and like, I'm sending them love. I'm sending them light. I'm going to practice this. And I think that one of the beauties of this practice is that it's like, neuroplasticity in action. You know what I mean? It's like rewiring of your brain because a lot of us are kind of trained to just hold on to these thoughts. We let allow people to rent space in our mind. But the beautiful thing about this practice is you don't have to physically be around the people if they pop up into your mind. And like Ali said, it's you can either let that thought take you to a really dark place and you're putting out that funky energy or you can catch that thought construct and the idea of bhakti yoga is you see their physical appearance and once again that may cause little friction in you but look again at the at the picture in your mind and see their light there and just focus on sending them love and you'll notice like even in relationships i know ali always talks about the story where he was in a relationship with a young lady and they had so much friction in their relationship and our uncle was like man when y'all aren't together what do you think about and 
you know, he was saying like, yeah, man, I just think about how messed up she was and how angry I am with her. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm going to give you a recipe for success. I want you, whenever she pops up into your mind, catch that thought construct and see her light, hold her light inside of your light and send her love. And Ali did the experiment for a while and the relationship definitely got a lot better. There was the friction fizzled off. And it's one of those practices that, once again, your listeners out there, don't take our word for it. Do the experiment. And if you have anybody that's frictional in your life, do that. When they pop up into your mind, that whether they pissed you off yesterday, uh, last week, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago, but if it still pops up in your mind, it doesn't do you any good to have them renting space in your mind in a negative manner. Catch that thought construct and see their light and send them love. And see how that makes you feel. They say that it it helps you evict people from renting space in your mind. Or in other words, a release. That lady broke up with Ali anyway, right? Of course. Damn, Dan. But yes, actually. (laughs) Yes, actually. But it wasn't it wasn't then. It was this was maybe like this was maybe like six years later it happened. But you know, I bobbed and weaved. I I look I sent her love and light for like six years and it lasted. Like it worked. And she still loves Ali. Let's not get it twisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Who doesn't love Ali? That's what I'm saying, Dan. I like coming to talk to you, man. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that Ahmed was going to say one of the ones that I said, and he did. I'm glad you you did Bhakti, Ahmed. I would like to introduce one of the concepts that we have in the book that I think has had such a huge impact on all of our lives and a lot of the kids we work with. But I think that something that the listeners can certainly benefit from, and it's just your breath, but not even doing the breathing practices. We have a rack of breathing practices and going over the proper way of breathing and all that stuff is so crucial and important. So definitely check the book out and, and, and take note of that stuff. But I, I want to focus more on just your awareness of your breath. I think that as you become aware of your breath, it's going to assist you so much in life because then you're going to be able to pull yourself away from those situations and instances where you're going off center or you're going off balance. We talk about these kids we work with in, in these underserved communities and the trauma that they face, but I know that there's not a listener out here that doesn't have problems with sleep or they're stressed or they're anxious, they have worry, they have doubt, they're depressed, they're going through something. And it doesn't really matter where you're from or what color your skin is, or what your culture is, or what you've been through, because I am positive that if any of the listeners took an ACEs test and really learned about some of their adverse child experiences that they went through that are still impacting them to this day, and they probably don't even know about it, right? And they're constantly dealing with it, whatever it is, that stuff that's internal or this external bombardment that we're, we're overwhelmed with all the time. And And when you learn to be aware of your breath, when you catch yourself, when you're shifting into that sympathetic state, right? When you're in that stress mode, when you're getting fight or flight, when when something's boiling your skin and you're clenching your fist or your jaw, when that's happening, as you become more aware of that, it's easier for you to use another breathing technique to still yourself and bring yourself back to the present. When our teacher always talked about that, how the past causes anger. Someone said something to you. They did something to you. And it's like Atma was saying, they're renting space in your mind still. The the future causes anxiety. What's to come? What's going to happen? What am I going to do with myself? But the present is the only time that exists. And and it's the only real time. Like right now, I remember Uncle Will used to always say that. It was so cool. He'd be like, right now is the only time exists. And, And that now is already the past. 
Because now is the new now. And that's the only time it exists. And, and when you're aware of your breath, I feel like you're able to take control of your life again. And, and even though none of us are perfect, I, I still get angry. I still get frustrated. I still get sad. I get upset. All that stuff happens. It's part of the human experience. But when now when that's happening to me, I'm able to catch it because I can pay attention to my breath. And I see how my body changes. Our physical bodies give us signals. They're letting us know, hey, I'm not feeling right right now. And when you can be aware of your breath, then you can start to control it. It allows you to take control of your life. And I think that, man, I remember when Uncle Will first, when we first started doing the practices, it was after college. And he was like, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. And I'm looking, I'm like, motherfucker, I've been breathing my whole life. What do you mean you're going to teach me how to breathe? Like, But for real, he taught us how to breathe. Like all this higher education and no one taught us the right way to breathe. And then once you start breathing the right way, then you start noticing when stuff's bothering you, you're not breathing the right way anymore. You start panting like an animal. <sighs> you're in this state, this fight, flight, fear, freeze, all that type of stuff. So when you can control your breath, and we have plenty of techniques in the book that'll help you out with this, I really think it'll allow the listeners to transform themselves and take control of their lives. And honestly, I think they'll be able to realize some of the stuff that's happened in the past and how they haven't gotten over it yet and how they're they're currently every day still working on it. And, and the reason they haven't got over it yet is because they haven't passed that test. You know, that the universe is going to keep throwing that same shit at you over and over and over again until you figure it out. And the moment you figure it out, then it's going to be like, oh, okay, I might throw it at you one more time just to make sure. Oh, you got this? Okay. And then another test presents itself. Coming up, much more with Ali, Atman, and Andy from the Holistic Life Foundation right after this. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. I know that there are instructions in the book. Can you just say a little bit to listeners now about how to breathe better? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, if you're breathing in and out your mouth, you're breathing wrong. So you should always breathe in and out your nose. 
That's the main, that's the one thing we always say to people in, out, in through your nose, out through your nose, not in through your nose, out through your mouth, in through your nose, out through your nose, your nose filter, heater, humidifier. So you're getting the benefits of that. And then I would also stress using more diaphragmic breathing. So a lot of people, when they breathe, they use the top portion of their lungs. So they're doing clavicular breathing. So they're like just puffing their chest up, but they're only using a small percentage of their of their lung capacity. So they want to really make sure they're manipulating their diaphragm and breathe low. Like if you're a singer or someone who plays an instrument, they understand this type of concept. So in and out your nose, make sure you're you're really focusing on filling your belly almost. You're not filling your belly actually because your, your belly doesn't get filled with air, but that's what it looks like, that you're filling your belly down there, that you're filling your lower lungs. And then I would say, try to make the breath audible. I know it sounds a little weird, but there, there's a, a yoga breathing technique. It's called ujjayi. We call it the stress breath, where when you use that audibility, that audibility of your breath, when you vibrate, when you, you can hear the breath like that, that's stimulating your vagus nerve. And that's giving you that mind-body connection. It's, it's getting your body more connected where you're not going to be so reactive to everything that's going on, but now you're connected with what's going on. And it's going to be able to slow yourself down. And it's going to bring you into that present moment. So those are the three main things I would say to people. Nice, long one, in and out your nose, use your belly, make it audible, and then just make them nice, long, and slow. Long and slow, still yourself. Yeah. And with, with the ujjayi breathing, which anybody who's done yoga will be familiar with, I think you're recommending there may be periods during the day when we specifically want to do that audible breathing, the stress breath, as you call it, as opposed to breathing all the time in that way. I mean, I honestly would recommend trying to do it all the time if you could. I mean, it's a technique, right? So you can sit down and do it seven to 10 times, right? But if you're walking, like our teacher used to say, yoga isn't something you do. It's something you are, right? So it's all the time. Ideally, if you could walk around and be meditating all day long or in a in a close to meditative state, you're a badass. I would say, go ahead and do that all the time. You know what I mean? So if you can, if you're sitting in line and you're sitting there, you don't have to be sitting down on your yoga mat to make your breath audible. You can be doing it while you're driving. It, it starts becoming just a natural part of the way you're breathing. And if you start, you can continue to remind yourself, hey, I, I breathe like this in and out my nose big, long, deep breaths, belly out, and make it audible, then you can get those benefits all the time. Thank you for that. Another practice that I know you talk about in the book, and this you say is a huge issue with with the populations you're working with, is self-love. Yeah, I mean, we kind of teach that through teaching our version of the loving kindness practice. Ali alluded to this earlier. When you're asking people in communities where they're hopeless to care about keeping their streets clean or not resolving conflicts with their fists or a gun, they don't really have a value on life because they don't really care or have that love for themselves. Besides working with kids from these underserved communities, we work with adults. I mean, we started in the underserved communities, but now we work everywhere. Adults, college students, people in corporations. And there are a lot of people that we teach that have never loved themselves or take the time to have that inner foundation full of self-love. And once people tap in to that love of self, it allows them to kind of love and care for others without feeling resentful or being empty or feeling used because, you know, you do tap into that certain level of love of self where it ignites something inside of you and it allows you to love others at a totally different level without burning yourself out. This is a hobby horse I am 
writing now with increasing frequency because it's kind of the core thesis of this book that I've been writing for the last million years, which is that self-love, which sounds super corny and super selfish, is actually one great way to unlock your ability to love everybody. Yeah, I think one thing we noticed, Dan, was that like what people we teach to meditate, and I'm not even talking about kids because we can't really get into this form of meditation with kids. It's more of a spiritual form or yogic form of meditation. But in yogic philosophy, you're, I mean, and that's that's how we're raised. We're yogis. That's how we're raised. That's how we're brought up. That's, that's what our teacher was. That's what our dad was, a church we went to. So it's like that's where our base is coming from. But your body is just the vessel that you experience the world through. Like, it's how you experience the world. It's how you learn lessons. But you're actually a spiritual being. Like, you are the light of the universe. Like, a book is called Let Your Light Shine for a reason. It's like the light of the universe that's with that's within you. That's what we, that's what we want to let shine. I think it's working on getting people to connect to that and feeling what it is. I spend a lot of time in meditation, and I still don't have the words to describe what I feel when I go into my light and I actually experience it, it's one of those things that like people throw the words bliss and all these other things around, but that doesn't really explain it. Like you the only, th- I think you have to experience it people to get there. And once you get there and you see what you really are, I mean, people say words like omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, like all these things like that you're connected to the universe. And when people connect to that, they come out and they feel different. Like it's like, okay, so this is something different. This is not anything outside of myself that I have to be looking for. This is not anything I have to compare myself to any everyone else with. And you know what I mean? Like, like you're not you're not constantly comparing yourself or seeing what you have versus what someone else has. You're not constantly judging yourself. You become more aware of who you are. And in you in yogic philosophy, you're a soul, you're the light of the universe. Like that's what you truly are. But people get caught up in identifying with that that negative self-talk, their physical world. And, and I'm not saying to ignore your physical world or anything like that's because that's a, that's a part of you, too. Like your your ego, as we call it, is a part of you, too. But it's just knowing where you're coming from. Our teacher would always say, start your day in the light and end your day in the light. You start your day in the light because he would say, like, you get your base there with your true self and you go function in the world that way. So we say it was easier to move from the inside out. And like you get your base in the light and then you function in the world. And when you get back home, you're dealing with all the things that are going on around you. You burn all that stuff off in the light and you can go and have more peaceful sleep. But I think a lot of people struggle loving themselves because they don't know who they really are. Like they're looking at their physical ego self and there's a lot of judgment that goes with that. They're looking at their thoughts and there's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of negative self-talk. People identify with their thoughts. But I think if you can get beyond those two things, then you can truly start to love yourself. And then that love can reverberate outward. Our teacher would always say, you like we were talking about bhakti yoga and seeing a light and that, but he would always say you have to see light in yourself before you can see it in anybody else you're not going to see it outside of yourself you're not going to love truly love anybody outside of yourself before you can love yourself so it's about making that inner connection first and then shining out from there what is a simple practice that you would recommend for people to even start to get a glimpse of what you're calling the inner light the first stage of meditation in yoga is a stage called pratyahara which means withdrawal of the senses so you know what I mean? You got to kind of wrangle your senses and pull them inward. So it starts by, in your meditation practice, seeing your light, feeling the light, and then kind of going inward. And like we, we use the mantra OM. You can use whatever mantra you want that's going to take you deeper, but pulling your senses inward towards your light. And then you start to feel it and see it and experience it. And then you can tap into it at any point during your day. It doesn't have to be when you're sitting on your meditation cushion or sitting in a chair. It's like you have, like once you know how to get there, you can get there at any place, any time. I remember. 
when I started getting deep into my meditation practice, we had an entertainment company. Like Andy, Andy wrapped his ass off. Like he, we, we opened for like Wu Tang and like all these other famous people. And I remember everyone would meet at my house before the shows. They were they were doing the studio, like the studio was at Ottman's place. They mixed down a CD. We pregame hang at my house, and I would go upstairs to second floor, and I would leave my door open with all the ruckus and all the noise. And I would prove to myself that I could be in my light when it didn't have to be four in the morning, total silence. It could be 10 people in my house practicing their set, screaming and yelling, whatever was going on. And I could still get there. So it's like once you know how to get there, no one can ever take that from you. You can always get there no matter when you want to. It's just making a choice to want to go that way and not be going outward. So for people who want to try this at home, the recap is mantra meditation would be the beginning practice that you would recommend the mantra that you use, which is not unusual, is OM, and the silent repetition of this can take our focus away from external stimuli into something internal, and that, you say, is one route towards seeing the inner light that you describe. Yeah, and seeing, and also visualizing it there, like visualizing at your heart center, and in yoga, they say that your heart center there is a dwelling place of the self. So like you're going to see a light at your heart center and not with your eyes, but with your mind's eye, or your imagination, you're going to imagine it being there. You're going to do that ohm repetition in your head and you're going to try to feel the energy it's given off because it gives off energy if you pay attention to it. Like you're, the, the vibration changes instantly once you put your consciousness there. And I know an easy way to be, if you like don't have a vivid imagination, one thing that you could do, everyone has cell phones these days. If it's hard for you to actually see that light and you have your eyes closed and you're trying to see it, you can't see it, cut on your flashlight on your cell phone and look at that for a couple seconds, then close your eyes. And like Ali said, in your mind's eye, see that at your heart center and hold that there and see that as long as you can. And if you can't see it anymore, pick your cell phone up again, turn on the flashlight, Look at that light again, close your eyes and hold that image of that light there and just keep doing that. And like Ali said, the, the vibration that that light gives off, that unity within all things is that own vibration. And that, that speaks to me, Ali and Andy and a lot of other people out there, because that's the tradition that we were raised in as far as going into that meditation. But if that doesn't speak to you, you know, whatever speaks to you, tuck it in your toolbox Whatever doesn't, you can just leave it on the outside. And, you know, if it's just seeing the light, that's enough. But, you know, like Ali said, to take it a little deeper, see that light and feel that light. That practice you just described with the flashlight, I believe in the Buddhist tradition is called Kasina practice. Uh, my wife has actually been get, getting into that quite a bit. But I, I do appreciate having you guys on because we haven't talked to that many guests about yogic or Hindu style meditation. So I think this is, it's really good for our listeners to, to hear this. We don't have a ton of time left. I have two things I just want to hit on and then open it up for anything I might have missed. But I know in the book, you have some kind of advice, gentle warnings as well for white or affluent people who might want to work with children of color, children who've endured trauma. Briefly, what would you say to people who might look like me who want to work with children in much more difficult circumstances. I think one important thing is don't be Philip Drummond. Like you're not going to save everybody. Like you're not this, you're not going to save Willis and Arnold. Like, like that's not what it's about. A lot of people have that savior complex when they go in the neighborhoods that they see as less affluent than them or might be struggling more than them. Like you're not going to save anybody. Like we've never saved anybody. We've worked with probably over a hundred thousand kids. We haven't saved zero kids. 
What we do is we empower kids to save themselves. Like, that's what it is. So, like, drop the savior complex, drop Philip Drummond, who were Webster's parents, um, ma'am and George. Like, that's not what you are. That's not what you're trying to do. You're going in there and you're empowering people to help themselves. Like, if you go in there and that's your base, like, you'll succeed. Like, you'll, it's definitely a, it's a lot stronger place to come from. I didn't see the different strokes reference coming, but I'm glad we got it in there. I think that's a first for this show. I mean, when I mean, my kids still watch different strokes. If you go back and watch it, that show is it's it's, it's a gem. Like they talk about such poignant issues and like Willis and Arnold are hilarious. And yet you think the father kind of has the wrong frame on this endeavor. If going back and saving people, yeah, like I, I think that's what people see themselves as. They're going to save like the cute little black kids. You know what I mean? It's like you know what I mean? Lift somebody up. Like, I think true change comes from empowerment, not from them needing you for anything. Or, or Like, we teach in a way that our students don't need us. Like, we don't want our students to need us. Like, we would love it if we could go somewhere and show somebody something, and we would never have to see them again because they've taken it on. We've empowered them with the practice, and they know how to use it. Not only do they know how to use it, but they know how to show it to other people. Like, that's real teaching. That's real upliftment, and not just like, hey, come live in my penthouse in Manhattan and, like, Drop water balloons on the neighbors and like all that stuff. Have an old a goldfish named Abraham. I can keep going with the different strokes. Just let me know. Just let me know how far you want to go with it. <laughs> I didn't realize that your knowledge was so deep. I'm impressed. But you know, just to, what I am really impressed by though, and you you mentioned this earlier, but I want to put a fine point on it. The children you worked with early on are now teaching this curriculum to other children as grown-ups. And that is the proof or part of the proof in the pudding, which leads me to my to my last question or my second to last question, which is what is your vision for the future of HLF, the Holistic Life Foundation? I know you you, you work with tens of thousands of kids in Baltimore. You've also, Ali, you were telling me about this and over dinner recently, and I believe it's in the book as well. You've been working with some Native American children. Where do you see this going? I mean, I, I'll, I'll start off, guys. Like you mentioned, we have a satellite program in the Aquasasne territory at a Mohawk reservation, which straddles the upstate New York and Canadian border. And Ali and Andy and I were doing work up there for maybe four years before we got the satellite program started. And, you know, we wanted to make it more sustainable. And one thing that we always say is that the best solutions are homegrown solutions. So instead of us going up there, we train people from the community, people on the Mohawk Reservation, to be able to deliver our style of programs to the people in their community, but put their own cultural spin on it. And the success that they're having is like through the roof. The demand for the programs are going through the roof. The impact that they're having for their community is through the roof also. And I think one of the most beautiful things is that, you know, we met, sat down with the chiefs up there before we got the green light to do the program. And, you know, they told us, that this is an answer to their prayers. There's a saying that the um, Mohawk people are going to bring something to the whole Iroquois nation that is going to help them out and help them get out of this suffering and trauma. And the chief said that what it is, is these practices and this Holistic Life Foundation, Aquasazne, is that, that answer to their prayers. And I think what we want to do is we want to be able to duplicate what we did up there in every other city that we can and all over the world, honestly, because not only does it help alleviate and heal trauma, now all communities are traumatized. 
And scientifically, it helps heal that trauma, but it also creates jobs for folks. That's one thing that we're doing here in Baltimore. We did an aquasazine, it's creating jobs for a lot of people that wouldn't have jobs other places and helping improve things on a level that no one ever really thought was possible. And once again, it's all about empowering communities to help heal themselves. And, you know, that's one of the things that I see that is in the future of what we're going to do. Just to close this out, if you could just please plug the book, HLF, how people can support you beyond buying the book, learn more about what you do. Just lay it, lay it all on us, please. Yes, they can always donate at our website, hlfinc.org. So you can throw some funds that way if you'd like to. Reach out to us if you want us to start doing some work in your neighborhood, in your city, in your schools, your community. We're more than happy to sit down and talk and discuss ways that we can strategize and, and start bringing some of this programming to you, to your location. Also, Ali and Alma have an organization, this wonderful organization called the Involution Group. They have this new spiritual strategic plan that's coming out where it's going to take you a little, it's like a deeper dive than what we do with Holistic Life Foundation. So I would definitely check that out as well and support them with the, that initiative. And the book, of course, called Let Your Light Shine. Tell a friend to tell a friend. We're trying to be on that New York bestseller times list. Buy a few. They're great for Christmas gifts. They're great for birthday presents. Yeah, yeah. But please just reach out to us. We're here. This is what our mission in life is, and we're going to keep doing this forever. So we're here to help anybody if they want to start doing programs similar to ours. It doesn't necessarily be ours. We can help support you in that way as well. Well, congratulations again on the book. And thank you for coming on the show. And more importantly, thank you for everything you're doing. It's, it's extraordinary. Thank you, Dan, for always helping and supporting us, man. We appreciate you and love you. Yeah, man, we love you so much, man. Thank you so much, bro. I just kind of like you. I don't know about the love thing, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> you got to work a little more. You got to work a little more, Dan, to get the love out of Ali. <laughs> he loves me. I know he loves me. I'm confident in his love. But I, I love you right back. I'm just really grateful for everything you're doing. And I mean that in the realist and corniest way. Thanks again to my friends Ali Smith, Atman Smith, and Andy Gonzalez. Thank you as well to everybody who works so incredibly hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's once upon a beat. Follow once upon a beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once upon a beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.